millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In New Zealand, we've been in the grips of a revolution for the last 60 years. I'm not talking about people marching in the streets, the women's movement or a blossoming of national identity. What I'm talking about is much more basic than that. In fact, it's one of the three key requirements for our survival, food, clothing and shelter. This Eyewitness podcast looks at the first of those needs, food. Kia ora. For Eyewitness and RNZ, I'm Duncan Smith. I'll try to digest, if I can, the creeping tsunami of new and exotic grub that has flooded our shops, cafes and restaurants, revolutionised our national diet and changed forever our relationship with food and its consumption. Typical meal was, it was meat and three veg. My mother had an order with the local butcher and she would get delivered each week. I think there was mince and there was sausages and there was... Uh, usually a roast, which we would have for two meals, be hot one day and cold the next. There'd been corned beef. Mum would cut it up and we'd have lots of tomato sauce on it. My father really liked Buddy Tripe, but he just liked it boiled up with the white sauce as well, and it always smelt a wee bit like, like cow poo. And the mince might be made of rissoles or meatloaf, two or three vegetables, most of them cooked in the pressure cooker, because so everything came out the same texture. <laughs> so what New Zealand food was appalling, it was appalling, it was appalling. New Zealand food, appalling. We'll see. Now, the Symposium of Gastronomy, which I attended recently in Napier, may not be something you're familiar with. But if you want to examine changes in the nation's diet, it is the place to go. The Symposium of Gastronomy brings together chefs, anthropologists, historians, food writers and foodies. We probably all have memories of wonderful meals enjoyed in days gone by. Of course, the summit, the crowning glory of the vast mountain of luncheon delicacies, must without doubt be the pie. To get some clarity about the nosh we ate in days gone by, I went to a figure who has been an eyewitness to and a participant in the massive expansion and eating options we have in New Zealand. She was a home cook, ran a string of successful cafes and restaurants, and on top of that, wrote the food column for the listener for many years. I'm speaking, of course, about Lois Daish. It was certainly much more limited than it is now. I mean, I I never felt deprived of things to make, and as I started taking an interest in cooking, I didn't sort of feel frustrated by it. We made the we made the best of the things that we had and made made really nice food, I think. But certainly things that are just commonplace now, things like phyllo pastry, feta cheese, yogurt, other white cheeses, cream cheese, cottage cheese, uh, salami, things that we completely take for granted now were not around. So our range of ingredients has, has certainly increased. So where did our food come from? Helen Leach, an emeritus professor of anthropology at the University of Otago, with a special interest in something she calls culinary anthropology, has researched and written extensively about the history of food in New Zealand. 
the grocer shops, if you went in with your shopping list and asked for cheese, you'd be probably buying a tasty or a cheddar, and it would be wrapped in greaseproof paper and weighed. But it was very much you had a, a dialogue with your grocer, and he had all the bacon, uh, the cheese, and a good a good array of food, but not a lot in the way of vegetables and fruit because there was a green grocer. Uh, to supply those. And so every town that had a grocer had a greengrocer. And you got to know your greengrocer well, and he would tell you when certain apples were coming in or is he expecting such and such cherries next week. Yeah, I should have mentioned there's also always a butcher too. The butcher was processing um, carcasses himself. He could actually go in and pre-order something that wasn't a conventional cut. You could ask him, oh, have you got any brains this week? And what about tripe? We ate an awful lot of offal still. And that was, in a way, a hangover from the the wartime era uh, because offal wasn't rationed. Now, a good cook with even a limited range of ingredients can turn out some pretty awesome kai. But what about when you're on the road? David Vert, anthropologist, author and foodie. Fish and chips... Pies, ham sandwiches, you know, the, the small town cafe with the glass cabinets. Yeah, you know, so tea rooms. Tea, yeah. tea rooms, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> tea rooms, tea rooms, yes. Alexa Johnson is an author, art curator and historian who has fond memories of stopping at tea rooms with her family. You'd go in and it would, if, uh, this is if your mother hadn't actually packed something to eat on the way, which was <laughs> always more economical but a bit boring. But still, in those days you'd go in and there'd be a whole display, which would be, again, sandwiches, and then there would be the usual sort of ginger crunch and Louise cake and things. And you'd be allowed to choose, in our family, two things, one savoury, one sweet. And sausage rolls, of course. Finding a good sausage roll was a great achievement. And nowadays it's even harder to do to find a good sausage roll. There's a certain charm to that unpretentiousness of those places. I asked a few of the people at the Symposium of Gastronomy what their school lunches had consisted of. Sandwiches. Right. So sandwiches. Was sandwiches. Yes, it was always sandwiches. So, sandwiches pretty much rule when it comes to school lunches. Here's Alexa Johnson. Oh, sandwiches made with white bread. My father used to make the sandwiches because my mother did the other cooking. And we complained later that he always seemed to give us jam sandwiches. <laughs> it's the most unhealthy thing, but he said that's what we always asked for. But other kids, there was always a swapping of sandwiches that went on at lunchtime because everybody had sandwiches. The ultimate high-quality sandwich was lunch and sausage with tomato sauce. That was really sought after in the swapping. Um, jam was very well down. The combination of New Zealanders' enthusiasm for travel an influx of migrants and the relative prosperity the nation enjoyed in the 1950s and 60s created a recipe for change. Here's Lois Stache again. As a child, she spent several years living in New York. My mother continued making sort of home-style American food, which the other families round about us, we were living in, in back in Wellington then, did notice that our food was a bit different. But then around about that time, there were also people coming from the Netherlands, immigrating to New Zealand. So it wasn't as if our the American influence in our food was completely unique. There were other families that had these other influences too. An example of these other influences was Romero Bresselin. Remember El Casino? The colourful and successful Wellington restaurateur who came here from Italy in the early 1970s. 
His sons, Lorenzo and Leonardo, have continued in the family business, launching several popular eateries that maintain traditions from their father's restaurant to this day. Here's Leonardo. It was the first pizza shop in Wellington, second in New Zealand back then. And so from that, that's when he started that, and that was tiny. And that's when he met my mother, who also was in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she had a little, like, um, pastry sort of art gallery type thing. And she had one of the first espresso machines. And she used to chase my father around at the markets to try and get this Italian to teach her how to use a coffee machine. (laughs) Well, that's what they say anyway. But from there, you know, they got together and then they ran the restaurant. You know, back then, spaghetti bolognese calamari, the, you know, things that are pretty well known to everyone these days back yeah. then were, were completely exotic. I think there was a handful of really good restaurants back then, The Coachman, Orsini's, there was, you know, yeah, uh, Des yeah. Britain and back in those days. He even, I remember he always used to tell us when we go to the petrol station because you get the, you know, you got the fish bait, you know, the freezers. Yeah. And that's where he had to source his squid from back then. Is that right? Yeah. And... <laughs> So it started as, you know, fish bait. Romero was not alone. The likes of Susie van der Quast, Harry Saracen, the legendary Madame Louise all made their marks on the food culture in Wellington. And there will be other émigrés and other centres around the country who have fed into the local food scene. There's no doubt that our food culture has changed massively. What drives this change? Is it the immigrants who bring different food traditions? The New Zealanders who have travelled and developed an appetite for more exotic fare? Or is it something else entirely? Helen Leach. Change normally takes place through time as people adjust techniques and knowledge to suit the current conditions. There are many factors which drive the changes in our ever-evolving diet. These include not just exposure to other cultures, influences and recipes, but also how we learn to cook at home and a school cooking syllabus shaped by the austerity prevailing through the depression and rationing of the war years. Fluctuations in the supply and price of ingredients is a key driver of change and, of course, the introduction of new technologies. Many will remember the impact that the microwave oven had on food preparation but it was by no means the first invention to stir things up. Helen Leach. And roasts were the major meat component in the 50s. But when the electric fry pan appeared, it coincided with a lot of the women going out to work and not having time to do a roast. And so the door opened to a whole string of so-called overseas or continental recipes. So you get a change which affects the recipes, it affects what you're cooking them in, and it's related to your socioeconomic conditions, like women going out working beyond the home. The change goes on all the time. Since we settled, Pākehā settled New Zealand, they have been incredibly dependent on imported uh, foodstuffs. You've been listening to an Eyewitness podcast. The archival audio was from Nautonga Sound and Vision. You can find this and others in the series by going to eyewitness at rnz.co.nz. This podcast was produced by me, Duncan Smith, and executive produced by Justin Gregory for RNZ National. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.